0: Hello and welcome again to another episode of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Stu and this week I'm going to be talking to Professor Greg Chow from the University of Melbourne about a new way to combat bacterial infections which does not rely on antibiotics. Claire will be speaking to Professor Sharon Bell who is the presenter of the Ruby Payne Scott keynote address at the Women in STEM Symposium recently held in Melbourne. And Chris will update us on some good news from the fight against malaria in Sri Lanka. So stay tuned. listening to Lost in Science. Uh, On the show, we have talked a number of times about um, worries around uh, the eventual failure of antibiotics in preventing uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria from making people sick. Um, And I have got uh, Professor Greg Chow from the University of Melbourne on the line to talk about some recent work that he's been involved in um, looking for alternatives to traditional antibiotics. Uh, welcome to Lost in Science, Greg.
1: Um, good afternoon, Stuart. Now,
0: I did mention just then that uh, traditional antibiotics are having problems in in combating uh, common bacterial infections. What's what's causing that problem?
1: Well, the traditional antibiotics, by nature. It's forming. They will have a, a resistant mechanism uh, from the bacteria because that's how the uh, microorganism, how they release this kind of a compounds to against other macho- microorganism. And so the, the 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 microorganism produces kind of bacteria would have some sort of defense system, which is kind of a mutated uh, like a, a defense system. So the uh, bacteria when they uh, had these uh, uh, antibiotics uh, uh, attack on them and uh, and basically kill them, they always try to come up with a a defence mechanism by mutating their surface protein structure or even pump some chemicals to destroy these uh, antibiotics. So over many years since the antibiotics were discovered, almost like 70 years ago now, and over time... Bacteria start to uh, create the uh, resistance to any new antibiotics which is developed.
0: So yeah, so they just over time they develop a resistance to the antibiotics because they keep getting exposed to the same antibiotics. Yes. Yes. Okay. And has there been any any real breakthroughs in those traditional antibiotics recently, or are we we still using the ones from seventy years ago?
1: Uh, I think the uh, the the, the, the best time period perhaps. Since 1945 to uh, uh, 1985, I think that period we have seen that many new uh, antibiotics discovered through the method which are I uh, just kind of uh, uh, mentioned before. Um, so this is really the the, the compound created by the microorganism in, in in soil. In fact, in the last thirty years, we might only had about 2 to 3, which is really uh, 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 produced. Uh, so the rate we are having these new antibiotics are basically slowed down substantially. In the meantime, the, the bacteria's uh, 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 the, uh, the, the resistance is going a lot faster.
0: And, um, and the work you have been doing uh, in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering... You've been m- taking a slightly different approach to uh, to bacterial infection
1: yeah, our material is not antibiotics it's actually we call them peptide polymers, and this particular one is a star shaped so we have been making star shaped polymer for a long long time and mainly for like a, a industrial uh, paint or or any other rheology, rheology control material, like uh, engine oil, where you put the star polymer to regulate the engine oil viscosity when you have a cold weather. For example, you want to try to start your engine. But uh, recently, when we start to make this material from amino acids, which is the building block for human body, we will particularly design this star polymer for delivery. Drugs, because the size of them are around 10 to 30 nanometers. We thought this would be very good as a drug carrier to deliver like a cancer drug. So they can do their purpose of delivering the drug and then afterwards they can basically uh, break down by the body and then basically go back to the precursor as an amino acid, which can also be reused by body to build their own uh, DNA or, or materials. So so what we actually found uh, uh, some years ago, we found that when we make uh, a positive charge, the star polypeptides, polymer, and we found they have a killing effect. They actually become toxic to, 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 to some cells. So they made us to rethink the whole strategy. Maybe there's a revenue we can investigate where these uh, peptide-based polymer, if we get the formula right, and they can actually the bacteria. So we go to the drawing board and redesign the whole starch polymer with new uh, amino acids. We're really looking at the, how they may be charged or targeting the surface of the bacteria or how there may be some hydrophobic component which you can interact with the membrane so they can take the membrane apart so so we had this principle and then we redesigned the, the whole structure and then we found indeed that if you get the formula right they can actually kill the bacteria particularly the drug resistant bacteria
0: so have you have you tested the uh the peptide polymers in um in humans yet or are we still no, no, some no. way and from so far, that
1: well we tried it we tried a number of uh Bugs, uh which is the drug resistant uh, uh, bacteria in the lab in vitro. And also, we also tried uh, uh, our mice, uh, in, 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 or that's the in vivo. And, and the, 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 the early stage, well, the results which is published in, in, in the paper about three weeks ago are very, very exciting and also very encouraging because this is the first time in vivo we can see. Um, material like uh, peptide polymers can kill bacteria by not using uh, antibiotics, and, and that really gives us a uh, new thinking. Maybe perhaps uh, there's a real revenue we can investigate to get the medicine and, and treat these uh, uh, bacteria in the future uh, uh, time.
0: And and is it likely that the um, that the bacteria will develop resistance to this kind of treatment, or are they Showing no signs of... Well, uh... we
1: actually delivered, deliberately uh, uh, did one experiment with our star polymer, uh, where we actually incubated uh, the, 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 the the bacteria with our star polymer at a lower dose so that it you will know, not kill the bacteria. And then we, we, we let them grow for 600 generations, which is over 24 days. Now, normally... By that long time, bacteria would start to have uh, resistance. Now, after that, we take the mutated, or oh, 600 generations of the bacteria, then we take our lethal dose of our, our or you call normal dose, which will kill them in the past, and and, and, and then test them, and then our star efficacy has not changed. We can still kill these bacteria. That means the bacteria has not produce resistance to
0: our star poly- polymer. That all sounds um, pretty exciting and uh, i be interested to um, hear more about uh, the ongoing work with these, um, with these peptide polymers to, uh, to beat the superbugs in the future.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's perhaps this is a uh, way I will spend a lot of time in the near future to do this uh, uh, area of work.
0: Well, thanks very much for joining us on Lost in Science, Professor Kiao. Oh, and
1: my yeah.
0: and uh, we'll we'll keep an eye on your uh, on your work and, and see um, you know maybe maybe we'll uh, see the products of it in uh, in hospitals at some point in the future. Nice to help, so. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you.
2: The inaugural Ruby Payne Scott keynote address was given at the Women in STEM and Innovation Symposium in Melbourne in September. The presenter of the keynote address is Professor Sharon Bell, also the chair of the Women in Science in Australia Expert Advisory Board. I caught up with Professor Bell after she presented to hear from her why this keynote address is named after Ruby Payne Scott. Who was she and why is
3: her story so important to tell? Okay, so Ruby Payne Scott was an absolutely leading radio astronomer in Australia in the early part of the the last century, so in the 1940s and 50s. She was a young woman who had grown up in country um, New South Wales. She'd been educated in schools in Sydney. She gained a scholarship to the University of Sydney And she went on to be uh, one of our first radio astronomers and our first female radio astronomer in Australia. She was working at a time when the field was very open to new inventions and the group she was working with was working with uh, radar. They were also becoming aware of the ability and developing the ability to track um, movements, through astronomy that we had never seen previously. Ruby's work was absolutely instrumental in putting Australia on the map in terms of radio astronomy. Why is it so important to celebrate her achievements today at this symposium? Really important to celebrate her achievements because she was an outstanding scientist who produced remarkable work within a very short period of time. The other reason to celebrate and be aware of her achievements is that that short time was due to the fact that, under the circumstances that existed then, she wasn't able to be married and continue her work in an ongoing position in CSIRO uh, because the marriage ban was in place. Marriage marriage bar that had been introduced in the 1940s was in place until 1966 in Australia, which meant that married women could only be in 10 positions couldn't take on supervisory roles, therefore couldn't get promoted, and were the first to be made redundant at times of redundancy. So there is also a great tragedy in Ruby's career that her career was cut short in a formal sense in terms of her research, but we need to remember that after having a period of just over a decade uh, where she had a family, looked after the family, she returned to be a science teacher. So there was, if you like, a second wave of her career where she obviously had a fantastic effect as a great science teacher in Sydney on generations of young people.
2: She made the best of a fairly tragic situation.
3: She made the best of a very difficult situation. I don't know that Ruby would have said tragic. I suspect she she was known to be very feisty. Uh, She was a member of the Communist Party, so she was politically aware. I think she would have felt that it was a very unjust situation and she would not have accepted it lightly, and we know she didn't accept it lightly, but I don't think she would have been someone, from my understanding of her situation, who would have indulged in self-pity.
2: In your opinion, how have uh, Ruby Payne-Scotts, um, how has her research informed where we are today with radio telescopes?
3: The work that she did uh, as a, a, um, a radio astronomer was absolutely critical, as I said, to situating Australia and positioning Australia as a leading force in that field. The field in which she worked worked was one which was evolving where you had uh, an understanding that you could use multiple telescopes, um, what they called interferon, to actually work together to actually track movements and and uh, solar developments in the in the atmosphere and indeed in the, the universe. That work really I think you could say laid the foundations of Australia's really strong expertise in that field. Obviously she wasn't doing this alone, she was working as part of a team, but the work of those teams meant that the type of work we're seeing now where we're working as an international collaborator, for instance, on the the LIGO project, identifying gravitational waves is absolutely an antecedent to that contemporary work and that contemporary work is absolutely at the forefront of astronomy.
2: Do you think that Ruby has been given enough recognition in Australia for the work that she has done?
3: It's really hard to judge what would be enough. Um, you know, you could say if her career had not been cut short, she would have undoubtedly been regarded and known as an outstanding scientist. She's not, she doesn't have the high profile that she might have had because of that. Um, there is uh, some suggestion that she may have well have been part of a Nobel Prize winning team uh, if she had been able to continue as part of that team. But the other side of her contribution was as a mother. Uh, she's the mother of one of our most eminent uh, mathematicians, Peter Hall, and also the mother of one of our most eminent artists, Fiona Hall. So as a mother, she's produced these two, you know, fantastic uh, people who've contributed at such a high level in their fields. And as a teacher, she also uh, made a very significant contribution. So if we could actually take that together, and gain public recognition of her contribution in each of those roles rather than actually confining it to her radio astronomy, I think you would say we would all benefit from understanding that contribution.
2: Congratulations on the inaugural Ruby Payne Scott keynote address today and um, thank you very much for speaking to us.
3: It's my pleasure. Thank you.
4: Good news, everybody! Uh, it's yeah, it's good news time on on Lost in Science. Oh, where you um, don't sound so skeptical. <laughs> uh, we're going to celebrate an uh, um, a recent milestone um, on the fifth of September, twenty sixteen, this year. the uh, The World Health Organization declared that Sri Lanka um, is now officially malaria free. Really? Yes, they have. That
2: is something to celebrate. They have
4: eradicated malaria. It's been more than three years since the last case in Sri Lanka, so it's set, you is know, that. Is that they set some
0: sort of cut-off date that they had set up, or is that just?
4: I think that yeah, it's how they count it. And look, and there are actually it's not they're not the only ones. You know, there are a few other countries that are um, close to to um, eradicating malaria as well, which is which is really good news and it shows um, what can be done. And <clears throat> yeah, it looks really interesting in the, when we're we're in the battle against these kind of infectious diseases that still actually affect a lot of people and still are major killers in parts of the world that there, that there can be progress made. So like Sri Lanka was, uh, years ago, was one of the the worst affected countries by malaria. Um, and so this is the other reason why this is, I guess, seen as a, as a major milestone. So a bit of history, I guess. Um, they, they did have an eradication campaign uh, about 50 years ago, back in the... In the early sort of in the fifties and sixties, um, where they were basically trying to wipe out um, malaria, mostly by uh, using DDT to kill mosquitoes, um, and they had um, another, uh, was it the, the, uh, a medicine called? looking for? Medicine called chloroquine, which where they were using to actually um, tackle the the disease itself. Um, thing is that this campaign it kind of ran out of money um in the sort of in the in the 60s and by 1969 malaria had come screaming back and
2: not to mention DDT being pretty bad to use would have been
4: yeah well there was um there was a rising kind of uh tide against DDT I suppose you could say in the in the world um I did see one article on this topic that blamed the whole thing on Rachel Carson's Silent Spring um, you know, that seems, kind of meme that goes around. Seems a bit, seems a bit much
0: to blame her entirely for the ban of DDT.
4: Yeah, look, and the, look, the facts are that it's not as simple as that because, like I said, it was by 1969 that it had really um, kind of come back in, in Sri Lanka. They're getting at about 500,000 cases a year um, by that stage. Um, now, the US was, of course, where the, the book Silent Spring was published. It banned DDT in 1972, so it was still around, right, certainly... Okay in the developing world <clears throat> long after that and their acceptance mm. made for using on mosquitoes and that sort of thing. Certainly there was a bit of pressure to stop using malaria uh, outside DDT in places, but yeah, it was more that there was, I think, uh, yeah, a reduction in, in the, the strength of the campaign they were doing. And also there was a rise in resistance to DDT as well. So the overuse of DDT in agriculture in particular caused, um, cause insects to become resistant to it. Now this was less of a problem if it was used to say to wipe out mosquitoes for disease control because they're using it uh, in a smaller scale but very intensively. But if you're using it all year round to, um, to on your agricultural crops, then yeah, the insects can develop resistance and that's by that stage, by the, um, the late 60s, early 70s, there was some DDT resistance going on. And of course eventually there was resistance to the... Um, the medicine the chloroquine that they were using to actually treat the malaria as well so yeah it was um, a bit of a bit of a bad thing for Sri Lanka but um, back in about the start of the this century they decided to they were going to really get stuck into it and um, tackle malaria and one of the things that um, is credited with um, being a very effective was as well as in trying uh, instead of just trying to eradicate the mosquitoes, they concentrated a lot on controlling the actual disease itself, controlling the um the parasite. So malaria being a um, yeah there's a little parasite that lives inside the mosquito, and um, that the mosquito transmits from human to human. If you can uh, successfully treat that when that when the case arises, then it's less likely that a mosquito will bite that person and transfer that parasite then to another person. So it became a matter of, essentially um having a very sophisticated system um of reporting any cases that arose of having mobile clinics to treat people in remote areas and just really jumping on all the all the cases and particularly for for children and those more vulnerable population populations so that was in combination with things like yeah um the actual mosquito control and bed nets and that kind of stuff now the um the drugs that they were using by this stage is the um uh, the 21st century, this is the mostly artemisinin, artem, artemisinin I'm, trying to think I'm saying that correctly, which is a, a drug that was based on a Chinese traditional medicine for oh, which there was a Nobel from, Prize. From the wormwood, from one of the wormwood yeah, yeah.
0: Um, plants, they found some active ingredient that worked.
4: Yeah, they extracted that, and that was a Nobel Prize awarded in medicine for that last year. Um, now, it's actually normally given in a complex with other drugs to help reduce the, the the speed that resistance has developed. There is resistance developing to it now, so it is kind of not going to last forever. Um, so, yeah, we, they need to try and get onto this eradication process. Uh, as quick as they can But yeah, the success in Sri Lanka shows that it can be done But a lot of it, like I said, came down to this: the system that they put in place For the monitoring and for the control of the disease So a lot of it was put down to their public health system And of course the fact that it's an island helps as well mm. But we shouldn't forget too that this is um, In the years that they were doing this There was a civil war, a rather nasty civil war going on in Sri Lanka And so they managed to achieve these results Even with that scale of, of um, sort of civil unrest Um, And the tsunami. And the tsunami, yeah. Um, They also have a lot of uh, migrant labourers come into Sri Lanka. And that was one of their big challenges was Mm. how to keep control of new um, cases coming in. And so they certainly have a policy of basically just screening everyone when when they arrive. Um, They don't even, they said they don't even check with their legal or illegal immigrants. They don't check their immigration status at all. They basically, the priority is disease control. And that's what... um, yeah, again, it's about the system and the processes that they put in place, it seems, largely uh, is, is the effective thing. So it's a good example for other countries. Um, there are 13 other countries that have that have um, a, a malaria countries that have reported no cases for at least a year. This includes countries like Argentina and Turkey. So they may soon be declared malaria-free as well. And there are 21 countries on a list that could be uh, free of the disease by the end of the decade, it said. That's um that countries that includes China, Malaysia, Iran, a few other ones like that. So yeah, things are looking good. However, sub-Saharan Africa, which is where most of the the cases are, when most of the deaths occur, uh, and this is a disease that still kills about four hundred thousand people a year, mostly um mostly babies and pregnant women. Um yeah, that's that is they're not on the list. Uh, generally the the sub Saharan African countries are not on the list of where it's to be eradicated. So that's I guess where the from a public health from a global health point of view, is where the effort needs to be to be put in. But you know, you've got to say for instance, China is like I said, is on the list for eradicating it. and uh, now China's a bit further north. Um, so they climate-wise, they're probably not as going to be badly affected, but they're kind of all these are all neighbouring countries. When you've got the landlocked countries, and they still can potentially achieve that. I don't know. I think it also gives a bit of hope when we're looking at things like with climate change. People have been concerned about diseases like malaria moving away from the tropical areas and, and spreading their, their spreading further afield. I guess it shows that we have other ways of of tackling these threats that we can we can sort of face them, but we need to be pretty quick and smart about eradicating them. But make sure we apply that to the, the poorer countries as well.
0: that's all we've got time for on this episode of lost in science thanks for tuning in and joining us lost in science is recorded at the studios of 3cr in melbourne and broadcast across australia on the community radio network with the financial assistance of the community broadcasting foundation if you want to talk to us talk back to us uh you can get in touch we have a gmail account lost at gmail uh you can also find us on twitter and on the facebook Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost Lost in Science! Science!